our first reading is really easy to find. It's on page five in your church Bibles. Genesis chapter three, starting at verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from that tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading is taken from the book of Luke and can be found in our church Bibles on page 1041. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, First let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. I think I'm switched on now. Okay. Technically speaking, that is. We all make excuses. And some of us. Here are some of the excuses that people have made that they've written down on their accident claim forms um, as to how they got involved in a car accident. I'll read you a few of them. Here's wrong house and collided with a tree that wasn't there. Here's another one. The other car collided with mine without giving warning of his intention. Third one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. <laughs> the pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran over him. And this is my favourite. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) In our Gospel reading this morning, we hear of some excuses of why different people would not commit wholeheartedly to following Jesus. And before we look at the passage in more detail, I have a feeling that God has been speaking to me about my role at St. Matthew's. And the overriding sense that I have is that my main purpose as the vicar of St. Matthew's is to encourage, to teach, to persuade, to invite, to implore, to call the church here 
to a wholehearted following Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I think no one here at St. Matthew's is committed to following Jesus at all, not a bit. I love this church family, particularly because there are so many people who love the Lord and want to see his kingdom come in their lives and in this community. But I also know from my own walk of faith how easy it is to get sidetracked. As Jesus taught in the parable of the sower, the worries of this world, things like the lure of materialism and the sheer busyness of everything, they come and choke our good intentions to live our Christian lives the way Jesus calls us to. And so this year, especially, we're going to challenge ourselves at St. Matthew's to become wholehearted followers of Jesus. And I'm excited about it because when you read the witness of the New Testament church and from the experience of of, of others I know of and and a bit about myself, the more deeply that we do commit to following Jesus, then the more we see God moving, the more our faith grows, the more people's lives will be touched by his love. So it's exciting, but it might be costly. It will take courage. It will mean overcoming disappointments as well as celebrating victories. It will mean sacrifice as well as rejoicing. And it may mean making some big life decisions about what God is calling us to be. So, does that sound good to you? Or is that too scary? (laughs) We'd better pray. Let's pray. Lord, you call us to follow you. As we study your word and try to work out what it means for us, send your Holy Spirit so that we live and work for your glory. Amen. Excuses, excuses. Why do we make them? Why do we need them? Well, if you think about it, an excuse is something we use when we either need to justify why we did something that we shouldn't have done, or why we didn't do something that we should have done. In other words, we only need an excuse when we've said or done something wrong, whether it's by action or omission. Just like those accident claim forms. And it shouldn't surprise us because the first excuses ever made in the history of the world are recorded where? In the passage that Andrea read This morning, Genesis chapter 3, the moment that sin entered the world and God called the first human beings to account and came the excuses. Adam and Eve were hiding from God after breaking the only rule that he gave them for living a good life. And uh, have you, which I commanded you not to eat? And what does the chivalrous, macho, fine figure of a man do? He blames the woman. She gave me some fruit and I ate it. I mean, obviously I couldn't help it. She gave it to me. It's pathetic, isn't it? Not much of an excuse. Doesn't put men in a very good light, does it? But is Eve any better? Verse 13, God said to the woman, what's this you've done? Does she take responsibility? No. The serpent deceived me and I ate she says. It's just more of the same. It's been described as the story where the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and the snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. Boom, boom. (laughs) But there's a series 
We only need an excuse when we've said or done something wrong, whether by action or omission. So now let's turn to our Gospel reading on page 1040, 41 of our church Bibles, or it's in the service sheets, and see what we can learn from the kind of excuses that were made to Jesus. And as we look at this, it's really important to understand that the context of this account, which Luke has given in this Gospel, is, we're told, in, uh, you, it's not printed on the service sheet, but in the immediately preceding paragraph, verse 51, set out for Jerusalem on a journey that will take him all the way to the cross. So he's on the road. He's left on. A person is someone who obviously admires him and says to him in verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that's a pretty big commitment. It's on a level with the commitment of his 12 disciples who, that's what they followed him wherever he went. But Jesus decides to test this spoken commitment by describing to the man what it might cost him. And he says, of spell one little myth that often goes round. This line is often mistakenly used to prove that Jesus never had a home. That's not true. Jesus had a home in Capernaum. Mark chapter 2 verse 1 says that when Jesus came again, the people heard that he'd come home. Now, of course, we don't know if he was a legal homeowner, but he certainly had a home, possibly at Simon Peter's house, who lived in Capernaum, where we know that he stayed sometimes, possibly elsewhere. But that's not really the point. Jesus doesn't just say, I haven't got a roof over my head, or I've got nowhere to lay my head. What he says is much more mind-blowing than that. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Referring to himself, but pointing to his identity as God, the Messiah, has nowhere to lay his head. It's an awesome comment on the extraordinary love of God made visible in the incarnation. That's That's God coming to earth as a person in human form. Not as someone in a powerful position from which to subdue everybody, but in the most humble. And as Jesus calls these bystanders to wholehearted commitment to follow him, he reminds them of the wholehearted commitment toward them of the God who is bringing salvation to the world. That's how much he loves us. That's how far he was prepared to go to bring his healing, saving love to follow him. But he replies that he first wants to go and bury his father. And Jesus makes a shocking reply, and, and, and perhaps it's almost more shocking because of Johnston, the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of ways of interpreting this conversation. Some Bible scholars uh, think that the man is simply saying that he needs to kill one day when his father dies, then he'd be able to come and follow Jesus. Others point to the fact that the duty to bury one's dead parent in times was so important, more important in Jewish understanding than studying the law, going to the temple or even attending Passover. So Jesus was actually raising the stakes even higher. However you know that what Jesus is saying is that His call on our lives is to take first place over everything else. And he implies that those who are alive, those who have not understood the good news of the gospel, the dead, Jesus calls them, are perfectly capable of carrying out the duties of religious rituals 
but those for whom the gospel has truly captured their hearts, those whose faith in Jesus is alive and active, their first and foremost priority is to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he calls The third person he encounters is like the first. He too offers himself to follow Jesus. He says, in effect, calls his protege, Elisha, to follow him. And it goes like this. Elijah turns up at Elisha's home, and Elisha is out in the field ploughing. Elijah walks up to Elisha, and he puts his cloak around him, which was a, culturally in those days, was a way of saying that he was going to be his successor. So he was saying, you're going to be my disciple. And kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll come, come with you. And Elijah says, okay, yeah, off you go. You go and do that. Before he sets off for his new life, for his family. So, so what are we to conclude from this? Are we to conclude that Elijah was a nicer person than Jesus because he said, that's okay, but Jesus didn't? No, of course we're not. But Jesus is making the point, in very dramatic story fashion, that everybody would have understood at the time, that the call to follow Jesus is even more important than the call that was on Elisha to follow Elijah. And this picture of not looking back whilst ploughing is powerful. Because ploughing is not easy. It was even less easy in the days when you didn't have tractors and you had oxen, which was what Elisha was doing. The only way you can cut a straight furrow down the field is by absolute concentration, looking ahead. And so what Jesus is saying is, to be committed looking to me, you have to keep looking ahead. And this became very real for me the day that I encountered God for the first time in my life um, in the little church out in the bush in South Africa because I knew, somehow I knew that what I'd found there was the most important thing in all the world. I knew that. I'd found the God of love who counted me his son and welcomed me into his family. But although I didn't understand it fully at the time, I also knew that there was none of my immediate family were believers. I was afraid what that might mean for the future. What was I going to say to Kirsty when I got home? What would my children think of me? Dad's gone mad. What would my friends think of me? Would they ridicule me? Would they give me a wide berth? And all these fears I poured out to my friend Chris as he drove me back to the airport at Johannesburg for my trip. Because Chris said to me, Pads, he said, if you put your trust in Jesus and keep following him no matter what, in other words, don't look back, keep following him, you will lead your family to Christ. And I was thinking, yeah, but you don't know Kirsty. Well, actually, then I realised, of course, that he did know Kirsty very well, which made it an even more bold. <laughs> but over the following months, over the following months, which saw our relationship go through some of the rockiest, most difficult times, to this third bystander, kept me in good stead. Put your trust in Jesus. Keep following him no matter what. Don't look back. And 18 months later, and thousands into Heathrow, and it was Kirsty calling to tell me that she'd just opened her heart to the Lord and she'd asked Jesus into her life. And I think I wept for joy. 
at what Chris had told me in the car 18 months before, that he was worth following, that if we can trust him with our very lives, with our nearest and dearest, and commit them into his hands, his kingdom come. After that phone call, one of Kirsty's best friends had become a Christian through her witness. A few months later, another friend and another friend. Jesus asking us to put him first. And his promise is that when we do, his kingdom will come. That's the challenge. But the tragedy is, or to put it the other way around, the good news is that it's only in the letting go, it's only in the wholehearted following of Jesus that we discover the depths of his love, his mercy, his power and his faithfulness. And the tragedy is that when we don't follow him wholeheartedly, we don't experience that wonder. Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Philippi, said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Nothing mattered more to him. Nothing mattered more. Peter, Simon Peter, only discovered the thrill of following Jesus wholeheartedly when he accepted Jesus' invitation to step out of the boat on, on the Sea of Galilee and walk on the water to him. Jesus told a story about the kingdom of God. He said it was like a man who found a, great, a, a pearl of great value. And so the man went away and sold everything he had in order to buy that one pearl. And he was talking about the kingdom of God. That's how we're to seek after Jesus. All the material things and safety blankets and comforts of this world are just smoke and mirrors. Our strength, our comfort, our peace, our joy, our salvation, our eternal destinies are only safe and only fulfilled in Jesus as we follow him. No one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus. He is how are we to become these wholehearted followers of Jesus? Well, I could tell you that what you need to do is this. Spend time in prayer each day with him in his presence, which is a very word. Reading a little of the Bible every day, the inspired word of God. And that's a very, very good thing to do. But I think what Jesus is saying in this is that it's much more than that. It's not just about believing in him. Those people that he met along the way, they all believed in him. But Jesus insists that real faith is wholeheartedly committing to follow news to those we come into contact with. The good news for us is that we don't actually have to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Bore out so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Because he went to the cross, we don't have to. But he does call us to be salt and light. Street passers come into dark places in Reading's nighttime economy. And last night we heard that street pastors are saving lives. The holidays, Ali would be quite pleased if we, uh, if we did. Um, but we're going to do two things. Between now and Easter, our first challenge is the 40 acts of generosity through Lent. I'm asking every single person to attempt to find a simple act of generosity for every day of Lent. That's 40 days, which is the day 
you're allowed a day off each week. And each Sunday when we gather here together at 10 o'clock, we'll share some of the fun things that we've been up to through the week. And I just, because I'm a bit of a mathematician, I, I like numbers. So if we've got between St. Matthew's uh, adults, 100 and Frosty through Lent coming out of St. Matthew's, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? That's the first challenge. The second challenge is the initiative that I've mentioned before, and you'll hear a lot more about it after Easter. So having flooded the community with generous acts between now and Easter, then we're going to spend time listening to the community and what questions they have for God. When I say the community, I mean our friends, our families, our work colleagues, those who don't know Jesus. We want to ask them, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? We'll open up. God move in wonderful ways. Our faith will deepen. Our trust in Jesus will strengthen. And his kingdom will come more and more. Many people say they love Jesus, but are not quite prepared, like those bystanders along the way, to follow him. And that is such a shame. As the author and speaker, J. John, often says, actually be as we do outrageously generous things for the next 40 days, for people who never expected it. And as we do, we'll provoke the questions. Amen.